Thank you for tuning into our Podbean subscription. We hope that you enjoy the message and we trust that God will speak to your heart. If you would like to sow into the ministry of Rebirth, please feel free to do so. You will find our banking details along with our PayFast link in the sermon description. Now, let's get straight into this week's message. Let's give a round of applause, a hand to our Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Kellyanne, for blessing us with that beautiful song. We speak the name of Jesus. Good morning, family. Uh, as always, it is always a privilege to stand before you to speak the, the word of the Lord. There's no greater pleasure, there's no greater honor than to proclaim God's word. I can boast in nothing else but the cross of Christ. Amen. This morning, um, we'll be closing off the month of January. We said in the beginning of January that we will be speaking from an expositional, topical style of preaching um, where we want to touch on the fundamentals and foundations for the tone we want to set for this year. So uh, it's good to see my brother Sebastian uh, in the house. Um, I just want to give a, a special thanks to my brother and Pastor Clinton for handling the fort last week. You know the blessing of having a man who's ready in and out of season. Um, we had what we call the great exchange. You know, you give your school fees to the school and they give you diseases in return. <laughs> so uh, we went well as a household. So thank you so much for the prayers. Um, and um, Eliana and um, Eliana as well. Um, so the first, one of the rules of uh, hermeneutics is that you honor your audience by wearing a coat. And now that I've shown you respect and honor. <laughs> It's hot, guys. Sorry. <laughs> so the topic or the sermon for this morning is the authority of Scripture in a postmodern world. Now, why are we speaking about this today is that Scripture has been challenged throughout the centuries. The validity and veracity and authority of Scripture is a basic to Christian faith. It's a basic. It is a foundation of what we believe in. So, but it's not a given in the modern world. So, skeptics attack the Word of God directly and indirectly inside and outside of the church and undermine the claims. You don't even need to look far. You can go even onto YouTube and you see the countless amounts of, of critics of the Bible. You find um, these TikToks where people are challenging if God is this and why does he allow this. You find that scripture and the validity of it. God is called uh, genocidal in the Bible for wiping out nations. You find that scripture is challenged and attacked time and time again. So the authority of scripture especially in a postmodern world. And what does postmodern mean? In a nutshell, postmodern is that there's no absolute moral truth. So you determine your own truth. You've heard this uh, time and time again on social media that uh, speaking my truth, this is my truth, this is how I, my, we all have our own moral standing. What's right for me isn't right for you. Live your own life. I had a disagreement with a friend um, recently who says that we should let people live their lives and you know this, because what's right for them isn't right for you. There's no moral absolute truth. We can't judge others and they can't judge, judge you. And it's driven by self-determination. So we determine what's right and wrong. So where does scripture fit in? Where does the authority and veracity of scripture fit in in this world that we're living in today where everything is okay as long as you set the moral standard? So we go back to scripture. So the issue of biblical authority is the bedrock of truth, right? So, um, so what I want to talk a little bit about today is the approach and the approach that I'm going to take to try and encourage you this morning 
Um, you know, there's so many ways to speak of this issue of public authority. But I want to try and enrich your understanding from the perspective of a point of scripture, which might be a little obscure, but I thought it might be pertinent to, to unpack this. Um, how do we understand the authority of scripture in a postmodern world? So just to cover some basics, what do we believe? Sitting here in this room, what do we believe? We believe uniformly in the word of God and that the word of God is the authority. And it's the authority of God of the spoken word of the Bible. That is what we believe. We, uh, this is what we affirm. This is our convictions and where our convictions come from. And we reason out of the convictions that are provided out of the pages of Holy Scripture. We believe that the Bible is inspired. Yeah. The Bible says uh, in, in, in the book of Timothy, it says that all, every scripture, every word of God is breathed. Um, that comes from the root word to, to breathe. Uh, every word comes from the scripture or comes from the spirits of God. We believe that the Bible is authored by the Holy Spirit. God is the writer of the Bible. And it's over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors, all in perfect unity. Over this long period of time, this Bible was authored by 40 different authors, 1,500 years. It's called the Analogia Scriptura. That is, the scripture is analogous to itself, which means the scripture is the best interpreter of itself. I know we like to use uh, different resources to try and interpret the Bible, but the Bible is the best interpreter of itself. Um, they say the Bible is the most hyperlinked book in the world. You know what a hyperlink is? If you go onto like a, a Word document, you're able to put in a web page, and if you click that, it takes you to another page. We've got work documents. I think the biggest document that I ever work is about 100 pages long, and you click the home button, it takes you to the home screen. If you click there, it takes you to a, to a slide. It's very hyperlinked, but the Bible has uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hyperlinks and references to itself. This is how interconnected this book is. And I've done the calculation that it would be 1,333 pages just of references, of hyperlinks. And I uh, remember uh, Bevan saying that he wants to write a book one day and he wants it just to be references at the back. Half the book must be the size of references to show how referenced this book was, but none will beat the Bible. 1,300, that's the size of Lord of the Rings itself. 1,333 pages of just references. That is how interlinked and interconnected the Bible is. And this is what we believe. So we also believe in the inerrancy that every word came from God. We believe in its perspicuity, that it's clarity, it is a revelation, not an obfuscation. This is a revelation given by God. We believe in its sufficiency, that it's sufficient to accomplish everything that God intended. The Bible says that his word goes out and never returns to him void. It goes out in a and, and accomplishes the purpose on which it was set out to do. Um, so we also believe that the revelation of the one true God is absolute true in all elements. So, you know, it's also noted that even newborn Christians believe this to be true, right? That the Bible is inspired. Even if you were to come to the Lord today, you can believe this. Um, in my years of being a Christian, I've never really had to defend against a new believer to say that I don't believe in the veracity, the authenticity of Scripture. Even a new believer can believe in this. Uh, there's a confidence in the Scriptures, even as a new believer, uh, that they believe in the Bible. Every, every word of God be true. Um, so, but even given that fact... Uh, you know, that we still need to reaffirm our confidence in the Word of God. Even us sitting here today, as long as we've been in church, we need to be reminded of the importance and the accuracy of the Word of God. This is what we base our entire lives on. It's like putting all of your chips at the casino on, on black. And that is, that is what, we, what we're standing on. We're putting all of our faith, everything. This is eternity that, we, that we're putting on the, on, on the line here. 
and we're putting all of it in the veracity and authenticity of the word of God that this is true. Because if this is not true, then what we are doing here today is a waste of time. Our lives are a waste of time if you do not believe this to be absolutely truth. In John, it says, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is truth. And the thing that is attacked the most in today's society is truth. This is, this is the difference between wheats and tares and sheep and goats is that those who believe in truth and those who do not believe in truth because truth is being attacked. For the longest time I believe that the earth is round and all of a sudden 10-15 years ago somebody comes and says it's a sphere. I'm like I thought Galileo and them dealt with this issue long ago. The earth is now flat again. I'm like guys truth is being challenged in every sphere of the world. Every sphere and, and, and the author of truth is, is here. So we need to as Christians understand that we will be attacked it's still important to strengthen our confidence in the Word of God because it can be attacked and we will be attacked. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in a secular uh, type of setting, you know, it's always the question. I'm always cornered in what is your views on homosexuality or what is your thoughts on God's silence in, in the Middle East or whatever it is. And you paint it into a corner to defend the Word of God. I'm having to defend the Word of God and to be an apologist constantly. And uh, this is something that we need to firm up our belief in what the Bible says. So, so um, it's also more importantly that we, we do need to give a reason for why we believe. We have to answer for why we believe what we believe. I don't know about you, but if somebody were to ask you today, why do you believe in what you believe? Can we give a, a solid, firm, strong answer to why we believe what we believe? Because many books claim to have also the answers. Many books Book of Mormon, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. There are so many books that claim to have the origins and the truth. So what makes this book any different? And that's an honest question I'm asking the church today is what makes this book any different? Because you grew up in a Christian home, because this was pushed down, because your parents told you if you don't go to church, you're in trouble. Or have we searched this and validated, validated this to be the truth? And that is what I would like us to look at today and reasons to believe. So. There's reasons to believe subjectively. And subjectively basically means a feeling or experience. And there are reasons also objectively which are factual. So you have feelings and you have objective truths. And the world also runs on subjective truths nowadays. What I feel is right. And not also looking at the objective truths. So being a Christian, there are subjectives, there are feelings that we can validate our experience. And there's also objective truths that we can learn and validate scripture. And I want to look at both of those this morning. So the first one I want to look at objectively is a testimony of scripture. So affirming the authority of scripture. So the Bible is absolutely true, right? It's a sole authority because uh, it is, it says what it claims to be. It claims to be the authority of, of truth. It claims to be the word of God and it claims to be accurate and it claims to be true. Psalm 19 verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 119 says it like this, your word, every word of the Lord is pure. Your law is truth. All your commandments are true. The sum of your words is truth. Every one of your righteous ordinances endures forever, for all your commandments are righteous. Or Psalm 111 verse 7 says it like this, all his precepts are sure. Or the words of the Apostle Paul that reads as follows, holy, righteous, and good, speaking of the word of God. Or perhaps in Deuteronomy 4, uh, or Revelation 22, don't add anything or take anything away or it should be added to you. So it also claims to be purely the word of God as Proverbs that he says, every word of God is pure. Psalm 12, 12 verse 6 says it this way, the word of the Lord are pure as silver tested with the furnace, refined seven times. Psalm 119 puts it this way, 
and uh, your word is very pure. And I can take you through all kinds of scriptures and going through it that way. Isaiah 65, 16 says, God is a God of truth. Or Jeremiah 10, verse 10 says, the Lord is, tr is the true God. John 33, verse 3, uh, 3, verse 33 says, God is truthful. John 17 says, the only, he is the only true God. First John 5 verse 20 says he is the true God and on and on and on. The scripture also says that twice in scripture it says that God cannot lie. God is truthful. So the scripture claims in itself to be the truth. So we need to test that, that hypothesis. So we can also look at Hebrews, Hebrews 1. It says that God has spoken in the past in many ways and now he has spoken through his son. 1 Peter 1 says, No scripture is by uh, some private organization, but holy men who are moved by the Holy Spirit to write them as they wrote. And Paul's letters to, in, in Timothy uh, says that God, the scriptures, God breathed. And uh, the word was theonustos, you know, where we get pneumonia from, it's God breathed. So scripture is God breathed, and it's claiming to be authoritative. Uh, scripture is claiming to be, uh, to be affirming of itself. So that is the first line of testimony that we have in the scripture. The scripture attests to its own truth, that God's word is true. The second line of testimony that we can look at is the testimonies of the writers of scriptures. So the second way we can affirm scripture is by the writers of scripture. So the writers of the Old Testament refer to their writings as the word of God over 3,800 times. The New Testament writers also quote the Old Testament as the word of God. So you have the New Testament affirming the Old Testament as well. And... Uh, uh, so that's over a thousand times. So the New Testament writers affirm the authority of Scripture and divine inspiration and the authorship of the Old Testament. So if I was going to follow this approach, um, I could suggest to you 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul makes two references and calls in both Scriptures. So Paul also concerned, uh, considers New Testament writing as Scripture. One of them is Deuteronomy 25 uh, verse 4 and the others from Luke 10. So Luke is writing, Luke is writing, and he calls it both scripture, Old and New Testament. Second Peter uh, 3:15 and 16, Paul calls the writing of scripture in Jude, in Jude, that's Jude 17 and 18, he calls it scripture as well. So we find New Testament writers referring to New Testament writers and saying this is scripture. So scripture is validating itself within itself so that's the testimony of the writers of Scripture affirming that this is the Word of God and the Word of God to be true. And so and so on it goes. You can trace the reality that the Bible writers know, knew that they were writing Scripture. That is the, the line of testimony. So there's very strong internal evidence for the veracity and validity of Scripture. Thirdly, you can look at the testimony of Jesus. So when Jesus spoke, uh, you can sum it up in John 10.35 where he says that Scripture cannot be what? Broken. Scripture is a unit. Jesus said, search the scriptures for they testify of me. He also says, search the scriptures because it is the key or the source of eternal life. Jesus testified of the validity of scripture. He also said, have you not read? Did you not read? Have you not read? He constantly affirmed the validity of scripture. And his commitment to scripture is crystal, crystal clear. Jesus affirmed that scripture is truth. He even said, your word is truth, as I quoted in John 17. Um, so he also says, don't think I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. He is also the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He says, go in search of scriptures. The Son of Man goes on and says, it's written of him. As it is written of me. When he goes before the, 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 the Jewish uh, synagogue and he says, scriptures fulfilled in your presence today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And he was fulfilling scripture in a sense. 
So when we look at external proof of scripture, now that's internal, right? So we looked at the scripture validating itself within itself. Now we'll look external. And I'm not talking about biblical commentaries or any type of books, but external to the scripture that validates that scripture is true as well. So going outside of the Bible, how can we validate that the Bible is true? One line of apologetics is experience. You know, if a man is in Christ, he becomes, what? A new creation. There's an experiential view of Christianity because we've all had an experience with God. We can tell, we can go and witness to somebody and say, you know what? God is true. God is real. I know him to be true because I had an experience in my closet with him. I felt him. But I think that's one of the weakest arguments or weakest apologetic approaches we can have because other, other religions can have the similar claim as well. I encountered Allah and I had something similar. I encountered, I don't even know who these other guys are, but I've had an experience. So experience is also one of the weakest apologetic uh, mechanisms that we can use. A transformed life, it might be the, the, the least powerful of all. So we can look at the second, uh, the second dimension. I'm look at five dimensions here for external proof. Secondly, we look at archaeology. So uh, we find that archaeology unanimously affirms the validity of scripture in text. You can find, I, I wish I could have used this as a case study, but there were nations that the Bible mentions. And scientists have said, no, this nation has never existed. There's no proof of these people. And then in the 70s, they dig out uh, ruins of these people and they find clay pots and they find structures of the nation to say that all of these nations exist. Because, you know, I don't know if you've met any Amorites or Hittites or Jebusites lately, but these nations don't exist anymore. <laughs> and, but scripture spoke about them. And archaeologists are finding traces and, and proof of these, these nations. So... This is also proof that scripture and, and archaeology also meet, they intersect. You can go look in the Middle East and you'll find specifics. I saw this documentary the other day where they, where they went to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and they found these, um, uh, what's, what's the, the, after the volcano burns, that, that remnants there, and they found that um, the, 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 the brimstone. So they found the sulfur, yes, uh, sulfur and brimstone, that's, there, was, there was cause for that. They looked in the, in the Red Sea and they found chariot wheels still with gold attached to them from Pharaoh's drowning. You find that scripture and archaeology meet, and that is validation that the scripture is true. A third way we can look at it is also science. So unlike Hinduism, um, you know, I'm, I'm having my wife uh, being a former Hindu and the family also, you know, getting exposed to the different millions actually it's three million gods in Hinduism but the foundations of Hinduism is they say that uh, the earth is on the back of of, um, of animals of, of elephants and when these elephants move that's what causes earthquakes this is belief of these of these uh, religions but the Bible says Bible says that he hangs earth in nothing suspends it in the heavens this is before science was even like established in the way it is today that he turns the earth like clay on its seal. That means he's rotating it on an axis. The Bible says that the, that the earth is rotated on its axis. The Bible also gives a scientific description of hydrology um, prior to the 17th century. Um, they said that there were thousands of stars. Galileo's days, there's only a thousand stars. And the Bible says it's like the sands of the beach. There's multitudes. There's over 400 billion stars in the Milky Way and billions of other galaxies. So there's billions and trillions and quadrillions of, of stars that we know about. The Bible predicted this and said this of it. Job 26 says that he hangs the earth on nothing. Suspended. Job also says that he stretches the heavens, which means that the universe was expanding. That in the beginning, before even science could predict that the universe is expanding at the speed of light. God says that I've stretched the heavens. You find this, you find evidence scientifically in the Bible. Um, 
So there was a, a scientist, a category, uh, so a scientist that, that categorized things. Uh, his name was Herbert Spencer, and Herbert Spencer died in 1903. Uh, he was a classification scientist, so he came up with, uh, with something that he got an award for. And uh, his scientific discovery was uh, reduced to five categories, right? Everything consists of time, force, action, space, and matter. So he was hailed for this discovery for time, force, space, and, and matter. I want to give him a round of applause. Well done. But if you had read Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. He created, that's action. In the heavens, that's space. And earth, that's matter. God predicted this long before any scientific discovery. You find that science is a progenitor and a promoter of the Word of God to say that it is true. A fourth dimension that we can look at is miracles. So there were historic eyewitness accounts of miracles and this all culminated in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That miracles you can go see in, in the book of Acts, you can look throughout church history, you can find that God worked by miracles to show his power. And that is a fifth dimension that proved externally that the Bible is true because God is the author of miracles. And the fifth dimension I want to look at, which is probably the most powerful, is prophecy. And I'm very looking, I'm looking forward very much to um, Pastor Bevan's exposition on the book of uh, Revelation, which is the prophecy of prophecies. But um, prophecy is basically predictions that come to pass. How do you believe the prophet? You believe him because his prophecies come true, right? And the Bible says that things are going to happen, and they happen. There are hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies of Christ. You can go look at Hosea 1 verse 11, says that he will flee to Egypt. What happens? His parents take him to Egypt when, they, when uh, they're killing all the firstborns, all the, the male children. You find that Psalm 22, he's on the cross. David is talking in the first person and, and prophetically and saying, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? You find it at the cross. You will find hundreds upon hundreds of full prophecies by Christ. God said it and it happened. That is one of the most powerful testimonies that scripture is true. Show me another religion that can boast this. Nostradamus tried. He got some things right and a lot of things wrong. You will find a lot of these people predicting things that God is the only one who's predicted everything and majority of scripture has, has come to pass. But what he said of Christ has come true. So the Bible says this, that it's going to happen and it happens. And many have come to pass in the connection of, of Jesus Christ coming in the first and then also the second coming is, is what we look forward to. So it's one of the most powerful evidence of divine authorship and thus the divine authority of scripture. So God is the only writer of history and he's the only one who determines the future. So the Bible is the only religious book made up of two distinct volumes, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The one predicts what's going to happen, and the second records what's happened. And um, so we are given an unmistakable evidence of divine authorship saying that here's what will happen, and it happened. So this is a demonstration of the divine character of the most powerful God in the most powerful way. And one of the most powerful scriptures that I can think of, most powerful um, prophecies, because a powerful prophecy is revelation, but revelation is made up majority of Old Testament. It is just a combination of everything that you'll find in the book of Daniel, you'll find elsewhere in the book, uh, in the Bible, and you find that it culminates, it pulls everything together. So revelation is made majority up of the rest of the Bible. But when you look at prophecy, and this is how we can stand on what we believe. So when somebody asks you, when somebody asks you, why do you believe what you believe? Uh, you just turn it up for me slightly, Chad, thanks. Um, so when somebody asks you and you're faced with this question, why do you believe what you believe? Because God said it and it happened. 
And I can't think of anything else in the secular world, in the religious sphere, that can boast the same. Only God knows what will happen. So when he says that his son is coming back, coming back for his bride, when he says he's coming with, surrounded by such a greater cloud of witnesses, when he comes back and he's going to melt the heavens, when he says he's coming back and he's going to judge the world in righteousness, when he says all of these things, we trust his word to be true. And that is why we stand on the truth of God's word, because God's word is true and in prophecy. And I can find no better prophecy than bringing it back to the gospel. Because uh, I was chatting to my wife about this, and it's like, you know, babe, we preach the gospel every week, and we've still not exhausted every avenue of the gospel. The gospel can be preached every single week, five times a day, and we still wouldn't exhaust the extent of the gospel. It's not just Jesus died for me. Thank you, Lord. Amen. The end of it. No, the gospel is rich because this is what we will hear preached in heaven until, well, kingdom has come, but until the end of time, which there is none. But we will find that the gospel is being preached. What God has done, we will see his God face in heaven. We will see him as he was. We will see him in bodily form. We will see him in his glory that everyone will hand their crowns down to him because we are not worthy because of what he's done. What he said to the children of Israel is remember that I brought you out of Egypt. And what he says to us is remember that I brought you out of that bondage and I brought you into salvation. So this is the gospel. And you cannot preach a message if you're going to a church, you look for the gospel message being the center of everything because it is Christ in the center. You cannot read your Bible and not find Christ, people. The Bible is centered around the gospel of Christ. So looking at prophecy at that fifth dimension, I'm going to look at something. Um, I want to look at a particular passage of scripture. And if you have your Bibles with you, if you can open to Isaiah 53, and I'm just going to walk us through uh, verse by verse, Isaiah, and I want us to understand this dimension of prophecy. So this is one heavy chapter. Every word can't bear the weight of this chapter, I believe. Language can't carry the weight of this chapter. It's an awesome, awesome chapter. One of the, the greatest chapters and greatest prophecies Amen. in the true sense of the word. It's bottomless, it's infinite, while being very specific and detailed and precise. Yeah. Isaiah 53 is the most detailed and complex prophecy that has a full historical verification written 700 years before the coming of Christ. 700 years. We can't predict the weather next week. 700 years after it's written. Isaiah 53 is so consistent with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that some people have called it the fifth gospel. But I think that this is actually, should actually be called the first gospel. It answers the question that every religion must answer, and that question needs to be answered by every religion, and that is how can a sinner escape hell? How can a sinner be reconciled to a holy God and how can a sinner like me be forgiven and received into heaven? That is the ultimate question that this passage answers. So we want to answer that question today and this chapter is to the Old Testament what Romans is to the New Testament in terms of contextual meat. What Romans is and if you understand the context of Romans, Romans covers justification imputation. It covers all of these different doctrines that we will find summarized in Isaiah 53, which some will say is the, the first or the fifth gospel. So what we have here is vicarious, substitutionary, sacrifice, sacrificial atonement. That's what we have here. We have the doctrine of justification, the, the truth of imputation, that is God imputing his sins unto himself and exchanging his righteousness for ours. Isaiah 53 gives us the truths that dominate the New Testament. Salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, eternal life, 
and that is provided by the vicarious substitutionary sacrificial death of a divinely chosen acceptable lamb who bears all of the sins of his people by taking it onto himself and willingly done so and the full divine punishment was, was put on him that sounds like Romans but it's in Isaiah so when you think of how the Jews reflected on this, because I saw a street preacher in Israel um, on a YouTube clip and uh, he was preaching Isaiah 53 and he's asking him, who is this speaking about? They had this. The Jews had the revelation of God, but they don't have the same theology that we have. We have a theology of a suffering savior, right? We understand. We understand that looking back, hindsight is 2020. We understand we have the, 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 um, Theology of glory, of a, of, a, of a death, a substitutionary death. I mean, look at Isaiah 53, we can't not see it. But the Jews have a different view of the Messiah. The Jews have a view of a Messiah that will be a sympathizer with their troubles. Lord, we are under oppression here. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Mesopotamians, all these people are putting us under oppression. The Romans, they wanted a sympathizer on one hand. And they wanted to conquer on the other end. Lord, deliver us from the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Romans. Deliver us. This is the view, theologically, that the Jews had at that time. And ironically, still do have now. They don't see Christ as a suffering savior, as the one they were waiting for. So, we see that Jesus comes back to his hometown of Capernaum, right? Uh, he comes from Capernaum. He's going into his hometown of Nazareth. He is the local boy. He is the one that everyone knows, the cousin of so-and-so, the son of, of Joseph and Mary. He is common in his town. So he comes and he preaches. He comes back for the, for the first time. He preaches in the synagogue uh, where he was raised. Everybody knew him, family, extended family, his friends, his neighbors, uh, everyone. Nazareth was a small town. Think of Enadol. <laughs> and he stands up to preach and he says to them that Messianic prophecy is fulfilled. I read it uh, just now or I quoted it just now. That I've been anointed to preach good news to the poor. So he says that today it's fulfilled. I'm here. Prophecy is fulfilled today. That I've come to preach good news, the gospel to the poor, to prisoners, to blind, to the oppressed. And what he was saying to them that unless you see yourself as spiritually poor, spiritually blind, in spiritual bondage and spiritually oppressed, this message won't mean anything to you. And that they were poor, prisoners, blind and oppressed. And uh, so if you identify yourself that way, I've come for you. I've come for the lost, uh, the lost sheep. And what do they do to him? The Bible says that they took him to a cliff to throw him off. They took stones to crush him with. This is, this is the heart and mindset of, of the Jews at the time, that they were so offended that he was calling them broken and that they, identif they had to identify with, with being hopeless and, and lost and poor. They did not see a need for sacrifice because they didn't see that because of their self-righteousness, they didn't see a need for a savior in that context. So the Jews missed it. The Jews completely missed the need for a savior. So when you look at Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53 is made up of five stanzas, but ideally you look at the previous stanza of verse 52, the very end, which leads into verse 53, or uh, into, yeah, into chapter uh, 53. So it starts off with an enigma. And my wife made the joke before, what is an enigma? And she said, it's a woman. It's something that you can't know. You can't fully, it's a mystery. And uh, so it starts off with enigma in 53 verse 13. And he says, my servant. So now we enter the servant section of Isaiah, right? So Isaiah is divided like the Bible. Just some context. Isaiah has 66 books. The Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters is also akin to the Old Testament. 39 chapters which speaks of judgment. Likewise, Isaiah speaks of judgment. Then you have the 27 after which speaks of hope and salvation. 
which has the good news, which Isaiah also murders. So the, Isaiah is sort of a mini contextualized Bible if you want to look at it from your Bible study perspective. So, um, so when we look at the, the last 27, Isaiah 53 would be in the middle of the Gospel of Isaiah. So in the middle of chapter 27, and in the middle of that middle, you'll find verse 5 and 6. You see how Christ and God is so intentional about, about how he's written the Bible. I mentioned the hyperlinks, but also the references to Christ. Isaiah 66 books. In the Gospel of Isaiah, you find the 27 chapters. And in the middle of that, you find Isaiah 53. And in the middle of that middle, you find this, verse 5 and 6. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. The Gospel is everywhere in this book. The elevation of Christ is everywhere in this book. Christ is the center. I mentioned this before. It says like if you're studying the solar system and you don't see the sun, it's like a man who sees the, studies the Bible and does not see Christ. You've read your Bible very little. And yeah. this is the truth of Scripture. Christ, you can't escape him. So I don't understand these heretical preachers who, who have the focus on money and all of these different other doctrines and you don't see Christ. You don't see Jesus and the sacrifice by he was wounded for our transgressions. I was singing that song all week. He was bruised for our iniquity. And this is the middle of the middle of the middle. And the middle of that is Christ. He is the center of all things. So this is the fourth messianic servant song. So it's, 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 it's structured as a song, right? And there's four of these songs about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. And this is the fourth. You'll find the others in uh, chapter 42, if you want to read them, chapter 49 and chapter 50. And then we get to 53, which is the, um, which is the fourth. And um, so it introduces the coming Messiah as the Ebed Yahweh. Ebed Yahweh is just the Hebrew for the servants of God. It introduces the idea of, remember Christ didn't exist, so it's introducing the idea of a coming Messiah. So he introduces us this way. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and he shall be exalted. And this is now in verse 52 towards the end, right? We're leading into, verse, into chapter 23. Notice those three, uh, those three words. He will be high, he will prosper, and he will succeed. He will be high and lifted up. There's only one other place in the Bible or in Isaiah where this is mentioned. And it's mentioned in Isaiah 6. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of heaven, and he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he's trained for the temple. So who this person is talking about, who Isaiah is talking about, is also God. So we see that this is Christ, and it is God. It identifies him as the one high and exalted, high and lifted up, and he's trainful in the temple. Also mentioned in Isaiah 6 when we have a vision of God. So he himself is God. And if you jump down to verse 15, it says, He will startle, uh, that's a better translation, He will shock and he will startle and stun many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him because they, uh, they will see things and they, uh, that they have not seen and hear things that they have never heard. So he's going to be exalted. He's also going to be above every king. He'll be exalted above every ruler, um, the elite, the preeminent, the most high powers. And this didn't fit the messianic theology of glory that, um, that the, the Jews had. But when you look at the middle of verse 14, this is where their theology had never gone. It says, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any other man and his form more than any of the sons of man. They didn't have the theology of a suffering savior. And this is where verse 14 is, is, is very fine that the man who is, they're talking about, firstly is God, and secondly is gonna suffer, and he's gonna impute his righteousness for ours. He's gonna take our sin in exchange for our filth. 
So you have here the theology of two comings in one chapter. The first coming and the second coming in one chapter presented to them for the first time in the Old Testament through the elements of, of what they may be given, but they did not have this theology. For Jewish people not to still see this now is, is, is shocking. Christ fulfilled everything. So it also says, who has believed what he has heard from us? So basically the Hebrew uh, translation is, who has believed the message that is given to us? This is God speaking in the first part of, of, of Isaiah 53. So when you're looking at Isaiah 53, God is speaking now and he's saying this. So who is he speaking about? And uh, Pastor Bevan had mentioned something in Jeremiah that we often get wrong. You know where we mention in Jeremiah that um, uh, for I know the plans that I have for you. You know, we've got the lunchbox and we've got the Bible's inscription and the tattoos and we've got all of that. And we, uh, wink, wink. Uh, we, but we've got that right. And oftentimes there's uh, an understanding of it in, in the secondary sense, but in the contemporary sense, God was saying something different there. For I know the plans of, uh, that I have for you, but preceding that, he's saying that I'm sending you into slavery for 70 years. Likewise, in Isaiah 53, we read that he was wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquity, and the chastisements of his people was upon him, and we, and we pray that oftentimes for healing, and that becomes our healing scripture. But what is the scripture actually saying in, 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 in contextually, because firstly we look at the original audience who this was written to, first rule of public interpretation, who was this written to? It is written not to you, but for you. So when Isaiah 53 was written, this is God speaking in the beginning, saying that who has believed what he has heard from us. So who is the message being given to, in essence, what it's saying? This is for Israel, first and foremost. This is also not for Israel of Isaiah's times in, uh, in 700 years before Christ. This is a future generation of, of Israel, and we'll see that in here. So Jeremiah 31 promises a new covenant, a salvation to, to Israel as a nation. Ezekiel does the same, a new covenant of salvation to Israel as a nation. Romans says, in Romans 11, 25 to 27, it says, all Israel will be saved. So there's a particular remnant that this is being addressed to. Zechariah 12, verse 10, very powerful scripture, which says that they will look on him whom they have what? Pierced. And they will mourn for him as the only son. Ananias and uh, Caiaphas, those guys are long gone. So who is this that is looking upon him at his second coming? Like I said, you have the theology of the first coming and the second coming in here. So it's talking to Israel, but not Israel contemporary at the time, but Israel of the future. And this may be next week, this may be 10 years, 20 years from now, but he's talking to Israel at the second coming of Christ. So you don't really, um, and also, you know, you need to look at it from this perspective. Uh, by my calculation, it will be about 5 million Jews that are, that are the remnant that are saved if it were to happen today. And you don't really think that 5 million Jews would all of a sudden have an epiphanous moment. It's like, oh, now we understand and all come to the understanding of Christ. But it's a testimony or a testament to God's great sovereign saving power that he will save these rebellious people that have been rebellious since day one. Go read Chronicles, go read Kings, go read Judges, go read the entire Old Testament and see how rebellious these people were. Nothing really has changed. Nothing has changed. So God's, a testament to God's sovereignty is that he will save on average, 5 million Jews if it were to happen today. So what you have in Isaiah 53 is not a prophecy of the cross. This is a prophecy of the salvation of Israel in the future, which is looking back to the cross. You need to understand that. What I'm saying here is that Isaiah 53 isn't a, a prophecy of the cross. It's a prophecy of Israel in the future. And they will look back and reflect and say, we pierced him, we bruised him, but he was bruised for our iniquity. And I want to take us through that. So let us look quickly at... Um, the next verse it says, and to whom has the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? The 
power of God, right? So um, God is speaking here as well. Let us look at the, the evaluation of Jesus. So let us, under, under, let us understand the estimation. We understand him to be the lion. We understand him to be the lamb. We understand him to be all of these different dynamic things. The rider who comes down with truth and faithful on his leg and coming to judge the world with swords coming out of his mouth. We understand that view. But let us understand the historic context of Christ. If he had never come, we were waiting on this one. So the historic evaluation of Jesus' origin is that he, it says in verse 2, for he grew up like him a young plant and like a, a root out of the ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was a nobody from a nobody family in a nowhere place this is the man historically that they looked at he he was born in a manger he came from nowhere you know, they say, what good can come from Peter Marisburg? I see three preachers here, so we, we can identify when, when people don't expect much from you. But they said, isn't that Joseph Lighty? He's coming from Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? There was no, no esteem for him. He was inconsequential. There was no halo over his head. He was nobody. Okay. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was inconsequential and a nobody. The historical view of, of Jesus' life he had no stately majesty. He was a king with no earthly kingdom. He had nothing. There was no reg nothing regal or triumphant about him. Jesus lived an average life. You know, between 12 and 30, the Bible is silent about what Jesus done. And I believe he lived a plain average life, working with his father, going to, to do the, the, the daily chores, helping his mother around the house, living an average, normal teenager life, never giving his mother any issues, but lived an average life. Jesus had no regal... Um, value to him. There was nothing royal about him, nothing majestic about him, nothing triumphant about him. Um, but, and also looking at his, uh, the historic evaluation at his end, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, and a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now this is Israel talking at that day when they're looking back at the cross to say, they're saying all of these things. He was a man of no reputation. We didn't esteem him much. And what they're basically saying when they're saying we didn't esteem him much, literally he was nothing to us. You know when you look at somebody you don't value in your eyes, this is what they were saying, we didn't esteem him. We didn't think he was anything to write home about. He didn't fit their messianic theology of glory because they expected the Messiah to come back and just wipe out everyone, bring back the kingdom of David, destroy the enemies because there's... There's prophecies like that, but they didn't understand the full picture. He didn't fit this triumphant conqueror coming back on, on horseback and armies behind him and legions of angels behind him. No, this was their view, but this is what scripture is saying. That he's a man that will be despised by everyone. Little reputation. So what will Israel's view of the cross be on that day? We see a perspective change now in verse 4. There's a perspective change here where they're talking about the type of man he was and then now there's a self-reflection so it says verse 4 surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and here you find substitutionary vicarious work of christ replacing our junk our fault our sin for his righteousness in israel's context yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by god and afflicted now it's saying we esteemed him stricken smitten by god so he was beaten up by god but we thought that he would be stricken for his own blaspheming, right? The Israelites said that he was a blasphemer. He equated himself with God. He says that uh, me and God are one in the same. And they called it blasphemy. So we thought that he was stricken because of his blasphemy. 
They said he was a blasphemer because he makes himself equal to God. But we thought he was being punished by God. But now we see that, it's, that, it's, uh, that he was stricken for our sins. It says that yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. It's pierced, scourged. 700 years before he ever showed up. How does the prophet know? In the future, they will recognize their sins. They say not their transgressions. It says for our transgressions, for our iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities and bruised for our transgressions. Ours. They recognize their own nature here. And we see in the next verse how they recognize their nature. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. They recognize that sin is not only evidence in their behavior, but embodied in their nature. Sin is part of their nature, not just in their behavior, is what they're saying. We are like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've all turned away from the true way. Because you've got to understand that Israel was trusted with the truth of God's word. There was all of this mess from Genesis leading up to the establishment of Israel. And God says, I'm going to take one man and provoke everyone to jealousy because I'm going to give them the treasures. I'm going to give them my presence. I'm going to give them the word of truth. I'm going to give them the keys to prosperity. I'm going to give them salvation. And when people see, that's why you had Rahab the prostitutes when they went to Jericho. She says, I heard about what your God done coming because that was supposed to be the effect that Gentiles were supposed to be provoked by this great God who's doing wonderful things, splitting seas and sending plagues and uh, locusts and, and everything is being done. And when the world was supposed to look at the, upon the Israelites, they were supposed to say, ah, there's something, this, this God is, is truth. But what did Israel do? Go read Judges, go read Chronicles, go read Kings. You'll see the same pattern in the book of Kings. And the king done evil in the sights of the Lord, and he preceded by his son. And the king done evil in the sights of the Lord, and so on and so on, right through to the last king. I think I found one or two that might have been okay with God. And you find Chronicles and Kings and Ezra and Nehemiah and Joshua and all of them. All of them, this nation messed up. Now God is saying here that you were the sheep. You've all gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. They identified that their sin is not only evidence in their behavior, but embodied in their nature. It's in their nature to be sinful. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There again you find the substitutionary vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ who was pierced, crushed, punished, and then scourged for our sins. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth now, we don't understand sheep because we don't have them. We have dogs and we have cats and birds and fish, but we don't understand the nature of a sheep. In agrarian society, they knew that the sheep was most silent when it was being sheared or when it was being slaughtered. This was Christ. He kept his mouth shut throughout that entire ordeal. He was punched in the face. He was hit around the head with sticks. A crown of thorns crushed into his head. They spat upon him. They scorned him. They harassed him. They gambled for his garments. They mistreated him. All of that leading to his disfigurement back in chapter 52. And through all of that, before his judges, he remained silent. Before Herod, he remained silent. Before Pilate, he remained silent. By, and verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. So the idea here in chapter, in verse 8, is that who protested? 
Go and search the Bible and find somebody who came in and said, I stand up for this man. A couple of years ago, there's a man named George Floyd. We'll know him very well. Cops kneeled on him. Black man, white cop. All the world lost their mind because of George Floyd. Black Lives Matter starts. Everyone is taking a side. Where's your stance on Black Lives Matter? This man was by no means a righteous man. They found fentanyl in the blood system. He had a history of criminality. This man was not a, even a Mahatma Gandhi or Mother Teresa or anyone of the like. The world stood up for, for George Floyd. Mm. Nobody stood up for Jesus. They said, release Barabbas. Release the murderer and give us Jesus. This is the hearts and mindsets of these people. And throughout that, he stood silent. So the idea is that nobody protested. Even in the Sanhedrin now, you will find records where they said for 40 days, they waited for witnesses to come forward, and which, which isn't true. But nobody came. Nobody came forward. The Bible says that you smite the shepherd and what? The sheep scatter. You didn't find Peter, Paul, James, Mary. Nobody came forward for him. But the Bible says he will be silent. He will be cut off. Nobody will speak up for him. This is the heart of our Savior. Throughout all of this, this is an entire ordeal. It continues to say, stricken for the transgression of my people. Again, substitutionary, vicarious atonement. Paying the price for you and for me. Verse 9, and they made his grave with wicked men. He died between where? Between two criminals. Right on the cross, you find one on the left, salvation, one on the right, damnation. The Romans letting, so the, the process of, of, of crucifixion was the Romans would let you hang there for days. Vultures would come, animals would eat your body. This was an inglorious death. Even Jewish, um, Jewish tradition for somebody who had died in this fashion, there wouldn't be a proper burial for you. They would take you to the valley of Hinnom or Gehenim, Gehenna, which is where the battle of Armageddon, where we get the word battle of Armageddon comes from. It's basically a, a dump yard for for bodies, for, for dirt, for filth, and it's a place where they would go dump these bodies. So after you were crucified, vultures would have eaten you, you would decay, and then they would chuck you in. But scripture says that I will not allow my righteous one to see decay. Scripture is true. There was no decay in Jesus' body, they took him off the cross. And eventually they took those bodies down and they would normally throw them in there. Uh, but he was given a proper burial, even though he was buried and numbered amongst the transgressors, numbered amongst the, the evil men, numbered amongst criminals. His body did not see decay. He wasn't buried in, in the valley of Gehenna, as the Old Testament describes it. So um, he wasn't allowed to see corruption. It goes on to say, and with a rich man in death. Very powerful. Who was that rich man? There was a man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph came and claimed the body of Jesus and gave him his tomb. He came from a borrowed womb to a borrowed tomb. This is the Christ that we serve, the Lord that we serve, that predicted that a rich man will be with him in death. Joseph Arimathea takes him and puts him in his own tomb, and he rises from there. The stone is rolled away. We know the story. It goes on to say, although he had done, violent, he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, and it was the will of God to crush him. And I don't think I have time to go through. There's so much in this, and I've got lots of notes, but I want to end on this. Um, verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, some people may see this as divine child abuse. We know what child abuse is, and why would it, God take pleasure in abusing his son? So, the Lord, we must understand that God, our Father, has no pleasure in the death of wicked men. If you die in your sins, God does not take pleasure. His, his will is that no man should perish, but all should have eternal life. So all of us sitting in here today, if you do not know him, you do not know his son, you are at odds and your enemies. It says we have enmity with God. 
So you, you come to know the Lord. He has no pleasure in the death of wicked. Um, but he has complete pleasure here in the death of his son. So it's a paradox. Wicked man, he doesn't enjoy punishing, but he, 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 he took pleasure in, in, in punishing his son. The Lord is pleased to crush him, it says. Putting all of this agony on him. It was a horrible death that Jesus died, we understand. So, Jesus, we must understand, didn't also die the death of a martyr. We know what a martyr is, right? Someone who dies for faith. But as far as I've read, martyrs die in grace. You see, when Stephen is stoned in the book of Acts, he's being stoned, right? You can imagine being bricked to death. And he looks up and he sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, welcoming him. There must have been a, a fullness of the Holy Spirit, a joy knowing that he's dying for, you know, if you, if you live with me, you'll you die with me. You know, this, this is the promise that God gives us, but he's a martyr and he dies with under grace. You find throughout history, they pray for their, their, their persecutors. You find that the martyrs are, are saying, Lord, forgive them. You find that there's a, there's a fullness of the Holy Spirit that fills a martyr's heart. Jesus doesn't die this way. Jesus doesn't die a martyr. He does not die a martyr because he dies under law. He says, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? There's a, there's a separation of the Holy Spirit and the Father because sin and God can't coexist. There's a separation. And for the first time in all eternity, past and future, the Godhead is split for that period. And you find that, God, that Christ dies. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also says, if possible, take this cup from me. This was the agony of the cross, sweating beads of blood. There were no sweet comforts. There was no grace. There was no unmitigated, just unmitigated, furious, divine wrath in a virtually infinite amount with no relief. This is what Christ suffered. So no Christian dies the way that Jesus died, even if you were to die in your sins. But every non-believer will die the way he dies. Furious, unmitigated, divine, justified wrath. This is what he took for us. He bore, you can imagine, the amount of wrath that God Jesus had to endure because we have an infinitely powerful God, infinitely holy God, and he poured out his wrath on his only son. It gave him pleasure because of what it meant. It, because of what it meant, it meant that we could be reconciled finally from that first sin up until that point. We could be reconciled, we could have fellowship with him. And those who know God know that fellowship, that sweet fellowship. When things are a mess around you, you have joy in your heart. When people die, you rejoice. That amazing, amazing, amazing joy that you have with God. So just in, in closing, just looking at the last verse and it says, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered amongst the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. And this is God closing now. God speaking again. God speaking now uh, to the future. And this sounds a lot like Philippians 2. You find the gospel in this book so, so powerfully. Philippians 2, 4, 4 to 11 says, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. So family, this is my encouragement for you this week. The veracity and authenticity and truth of the scriptures unmitigated. They've tried to distribute this Bible. They try to find contradictions. They try to find things that don't add together. But the Bible will constantly. God is, God is so good in, in putting this together. 1,500 years, 40 authors, perfect symmetry, perfect symmetry. The God who created the world through maths, that the earth is the perfect distance from the sun, one, two degrees difference, and we did the right amount of oxygen, the right axis that we get seasons, and all of these different things. The same God who said be was, was in one day, and he spent 1,500 years on this. 
putting this together. This is the love that God has for us and there's a truth and answers. But all in all, scripture speaks to prophecy and prophecy speaks to Christ. Christ is a fulfillment of everything that is written in here. If you don't know him, get to know him. He loves us with a tremendous love. He doesn't take pleasure in, in the death of wicked men. Today, our souls might be required of us. But I'd rather be found in Christ should I be required to leave today. So I want to pray for us and pray that this year is a year that our Bible reading goes from year to year. That we, not just verse of the day, where we read Psalm 21 verse 2 and then we finish for the day. Let us go and study scripture. Let us go and read. Let us dig deeply because when we dig deeply, we get to see what the Bible really says. And what it really says to us and for us. So let us bow our heads and pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, which is truth. We thank you for your word, which is pure. We thank you, Lord, for